us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who have been regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know about you, but um, Lent always seems to catch me off guard. I never seem to be quite ready for it. The first I remembered of it this week was when someone presented me with a really nice pancake on Tuesday. I thought, ah, that's why we're eating pancakes tonight, because Lent starts tomorrow. Um, I don't know if you've taken up something or given up something or forgotten all about it, and this is the first you've realized that we're in this season of Lent, this lead up uh, to Easter. Um, I, don't, I think for me, I'm terrible at starting, but once I've got going, I, I kind of feel I've got something there. Um, so for me, I was in a, a session this week, this is probably me being accountable to everyone else. Um, I was in a, a, a training session this, this week with other kind of training, uh, curates, uh, training pastors, and, um, and we were talking about confession, this idea of, of being able to be people who help others uh, confess their sins and get right with God. And that sounds terribly frightening to me. Uh, so, but I felt God kind of challenged me that maybe actually for me, over the course of Lent, to practice that discipline of confession, of just bringing some of the stuff in my life before God each day and saying, God, I, I want to have a spring clean. We have a cupboard in our house. It's called the office, but it's not an office. You couldn't fit anything in it because of all the junk that's in there. You open the door and it's now kind of to the stage where you have to bend around the door. Did anyone else have a cupboard like that that was a room you could stand fully in and fit around and you kind of bend around the corner to grab our filing cabinets in there and you sort of have to you know, balance on one leg to sort of reach it. And I wonder for some of us in our own lives, if we get to the stage where there's so much clutter there, there's so much stuff, dust is gathering, and things that we never knew were there are there, we need to have a spring clean. We need to just open our lives to God once again in this season of Lent and allow him in some way to work in us. For me, I think that's the discipline of confession. I think it's easy to pray the prayers. I think it's easy to think there are obvious things in my life that I know I do wrong or I know I've done wrong. But actually, maybe there are other attitudes in my life that I've just got used to, that are just gathering dust, that are just hidden amongst other things. That, for me, is one of the things I'm going to do in Lent. So feel free to ask me about it and challenge me about it, and I hope I remember to have done it. Let's come to the passage together this morning. At this point in Mark's Gospel, uh, Jesus is heading full tilt towards Jerusalem, where he knows that at some point he will die. Um, In this passage, the central image that's looming large is the cross. 
Jesus, in the uh, verses preceding this passage, has just said uh, that the religious leaders will betray him and that he will be sentenced to death and executed by the Roman authorities. The whole world is conspiring, it seems, against Jesus. The disciples, it says, who are walking alongside Jesus at this time are filled with dread and terribly afraid. They know that this journey is heading to Jerusalem. They know that trouble is coming and they have really no idea what that is. They just don't get it. They don't get what Jesus has to go through. Um, I wonder if they have in mind that there's a tough time ahead, that there are challenges to come. Maybe there's even a battle or a fight, maybe even a war but ultimately, it'll, everything will be okay, that, that they'll be out on top. Jesus will win through. And I think that's why James and John make this move. I think that's why James and John, in one of the other uh, Gospels, it's James and John's mother who actually comes to do the story. I, I don't know about getting your mum to do your dirty work. Um, my mum would um, give me short shrift on that one, I think. Um, but James and John make their move. However it happens, they come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. Have you ever had a child come up to you and ask you that question? Mum, Dad, I'd like you to do whatever I ask. And you go, really? I'm sure you would. What might that be? I wonder if that's Jesus' response. Really? What, what, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus said. Well, Jesus, we'd like you to put us on the right and the left. We want to be in the place of the, the seats of power. We want to be alongside you. When all the battle's done, when all the fighting's finished, when the mess is cleared up and the Romans are gone and, and you're in charge... I want it to be Jesus in the middle and James and John either side. The three J's, we're all there together. You know, we're in this to rule. You can imagine Jesus going, really? That's what you want? You want to be the prime minister and the chancellor, the top two positions? I find it fascinating that Jesus doesn't laugh at them. Well, he's very kind and general, so I think I would have just giggled. He doesn't firmly rebuke them, which he does in other places. You know, he, he, he's quite firm with Peter when Peter sort of reminds Jesus that he shouldn't really go to the cross and die. He just says this, you have no idea what you're asking for. James and John want to be close to Jesus in, in glory. They want to be on the right and the left, but they don't understand that for Jesus to be in glory is Jesus dying on a cross for Jesus to be glorified is Jesus being lifted up so that all men and women are drawn to him. And if we know the story, when Jesus is crucified fully in his glory, on his right and on his left are two criminals. They were with Jesus in his glory. James and John have no idea what they are asking for. It's not the powerful and the influential who got to stand next to Jesus in his glory. It's two criminals. Something profound about that. Jesus with those he came to save. The thing is, I think James and John really quite, would have quite liked Jesus without the cross. They'd have quite liked Jesus as the revolutionary leader who would have kicked out the Romans. They quite liked the idea of power and might and ruling and authority and respect and all these things that would have come with being with Jesus, they thought. But we cannot have Jesus without the cross. The disciples were well versed in the idea that the Messiah would come, but they hadn't understood that Isaiah, who in this passage Jesus is pointing to really clearly, spoke of a suffering servant who would lay down his life for the sake of the world. They just hadn't got that the kingdom of God has utterly different values to the kingdom of this world. In fact, the kingdom of God comes to turn this world the right way up. 
For us, it feels like it's turning it upside down. But the kingdom of God is turning the world the right way up. The values of the world are to grab power and authority, to grab at possessions and wealth, to, to hold on to it with all you've got. And Jesus said, that's not the way with you. That's not the way with us. Interestingly, the other disciples are really indignant about James and John's request. I think it's probably because they got there first and they were feeling like they'd missed the boat and were probably frustrated with their uh, slowness in that. And Jesus takes this moment where indignant disciples, James and John's kind of grab for power, and he draws them together to teach them about how his death on the cross should be an example for how they are to live everyday life. Jesus brings them together to teach them about how his death on the cross is to teach them about their every, how they should live their everyday life. This is the first time in Mark's Gospel where Jesus talks about why he's going to die. That he will give his life as a ransom for many. So what's this word ransom actually about? Well, it literally means a payment that will free a slave or a prisoner. So either a huge payment that matched the value of the person in captivity, according to the captor, I would guess, or the master, or it's the debt that they owed. So the, 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 the person playing, the, the ransomer, if you like, would pay off the debt that was owed by the slave or would pay what the captor felt the value for that person was. Jesus came to pay a ransom, to pay that price that we might be free. Not just a physical debt, not just one with pounds and pence in it, but a spiritual debt, a debt of sin that really no one else can pay sacrifice could couldn't pay it in full the jewish system of sacrifice was each year they would lay their hands on the scapegoat and the scapegoat would go into the desert and they would lay hands on an animal an animal would be killed for their sins but it would never ever deal with the problem of the human heart and jesus came to deal with that spiritual problem Uh, he ransomed us he paid in full for us and set us free that we are now different people. We're no longer masters and uh, slaves to a master other than to God. We are free citizens in the kingdom because Jesus paid for our lives by dying on the cross. That's the idea of ransom. That's the big theme that Jesus puts out here. And it was a big theme for the early church. That was one of the main ways that they recognized the cross. What it meant for them was that Jesus had been their ransomer. He'd paid their ransom. Because all life-changing love Any experience we have of life-changing love is sacrificial. The word love most used in the Bible is agape. We know this. It means self-sacrificing love. Sacrificing love that gives to another without wanting return. Maybe we can think of it in terms of being a parent. When you have children, they are in a state of dependency. Um, Over the last few weekends, we've had some really close friends staying with us. uh, And they've got two lovely little children, one of whom is uh, my goddaughter, And uh, it's so great to have them around. But when you have them around and you want to put something on the television, you don't get to choose what you put on the television, do you? Um, So we've watched Ice Age 2 more times than I can count. I can't put on the Bourne ultimatum when my two-and-a-half-year-old goddaughter's in the room. Well, I could do. I think she'd be terrified. Maybe it'd be good for her to learn. No, it wouldn't be good for her to learn. I don't get to read them my favourite story at bedtime. I don't get to read magazines to them. I don't get to tell them the stories I want to read. I read books that help them learn to read, that tell them the stories. I don't get to read them from this Bible. I get to read from a much more interesting Bible with loads of pictures that they can touch and they want to point to the most obscure, strange things that I have no idea what they are. 
they're boring books to me. They're, they're not that interesting, the films that I want to watch, cause, but I love them and we sacrifice for them. We sacrifice for our children, don't we? We sacrifice for them. This dependency changes. It's no longer just about nappy changing or feeding or providing safety and security or pushing them around. It becomes that we turn into a taxi service or we provide funding at university or storage for items of furniture that don't fit into a new flat. Uh, we help organize a wedding and pay for it and more. We, we financially sacrifice So for our children. We give of our time. We, we lay down our lives that our children might thrive. And we don't think twice about it often, or we may do, but we sacrifice because that's what love is. Sacrificial love is central to so many movies that we watch, both the good and the bad. Someone laying down their life for someone else captures us in a film, doesn't it? I don't know if you've seen the new, the, the, I said it's not a new film, the, well the new film is Les Miserables, the, the uh, movie of the the state, Hugo, uh, Victor Hugo stage play. I, I don't know if anyone's seen it. Maybe you've seen the stage play before. But the theme of grace and sacrifice that runs through that, the, the wonderful scene at the start of the film where Jean Valjean has uh, been given home by the bishop and he sees in the safe the silver and he steals the silver, puts it in a bag and runs and he's caught. And this is the violation of his parole and he'll go back to prison for life. And the, bishop say, uh, the, the soldiers say to the bishop, he's been caught stealing your silver, but he says that you gave it to him. And the bishop says, that's absolutely right. I have given him this silver. This is his. The bishop sacrifices riches and wealth that someone else may go free. Sacrificial love grabs our hearts like no other story does. And Jesus laying down his life for us on the cross grabs our heart in the same way. It's not this idea that God is punishing Jesus for us. It's that God substitutes us for himself. He puts himself on the cross. He is the crucified God, if you like. Rather than us having to stay as slaves, he came, became man, and laid his life down for us, became our ransom. And in laying down his life as a ransom for many, Jesus is giving his disciples the model for true greatness. There are so many books in Waterstones on how to be great at what you do, how to be great in business, how to be great as a leader, how to be great as a parent, how to be great uh, to make money, to, to be an entrepreneur, whatever it might be. How to be great is the kind of theme of so much. And Jesus says, you want to be great? Be a slave of all. You want to be great? Learn to serve. James and John wanted to be great. They wanted the position. They wanted those places. Jesus said, you want to be the greatest among this little group? Be the servant of all. Lay your life down for others. Jesus gave us that example, didn't he? In laying his life down literally for us. He gave us the example of, of sitting and washing the feet of the disciples. He took a towel and he cleaned them up. Philippians 2 tells us how Jesus gave up the riches of heaven. He gave up all that he had and took the role of a slave, the very nature of a servant, and embodied that servant life throughout his life. And that's what he calls his followers to continue. We appreciate love that comes to us through sacrifice. That's the love that has an impact on us. That love is extremely powerful. And, and, and it brings influence, doesn't it? it? The reason that greatness doesn't come from, from holding power and control from position over other people is that actually you never win anyone's heart. You win someone's heart by 
loving them sacrificially. So how on earth do we put this into practice? How on earth do we put this into practice? How do we take what Jesus did in laying down his life as a ransom, in paying our our price, our debt, that we might be free? How do we put that into practice? Well, obviously, we can't lay our lives down in a literal sense for other people's ransom. But I think there um, there are two reasons why we should be servants to others and should practice it. I think we can. The first is we we serve because we've experienced the grace of God, that we give to others because we realize how much we've been given. Jesus said, didn't he, of the um, the woman who, who I think washed his feet uh, with her hair, and she was uh, a woman of disrepute. Jesus said, he who's, or she's been forgiven much, loves much. When we experience the grace of God, there's a natural overflow of the heart. Peter's mother-in-law, I was reading that this morning, in my reading this morning, in Mark's gospel, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law and instantly she gets up to serve. In a response to what God has done, we serve. However, there are plenty of times in my life when I really don't feel like serving. I may well have experienced the grace of God, but my nature is that I'm about me and serving is just against that. Do you know that, that feeling? When you're reminded to do the hoovering, That's the classic one for me. Reminded that I said I'd do it. And everything within me is like the sofa looks so much more inviting. Anything looks more inviting than serving someone else. Because we want honour and recognition. We don't feel like it. We want just the glory without the hard work. James and John wanted the glory maybe without the hard work. I don't know. Um, I do find it also really difficult to do an act of service and not tell anyone. Does anyone else struggle with that? Secret acts of service. I find that impossible. Um, Well, not impossible, but (laughs) I'm going to tell you of a time when I didn't do this very well. As a new Christian, I was about 18 years old. I was challenged by God, I felt, to help out more around the house. Now, I'd not done anything around the house for the past sort of 18 years of my life. So I thought this would be a great witness to my mother that I'd changed. Um, So I decided one of the things I I would never do would be to wash up. So I, wa- I got home from school and I washed up. I washed up all the dishes, everything was left out, um, and I'd done it. And no one noticed. No one noticed. No one noticed that the sink was clear. No one noticed that the dishes were washed up. No one noticed that I'd got home first and clearly, from the process of very simple deduction, would have worked out that I had done it. So I felt that I needed to let everyone know that God had spoken to me, that I'd been called to serve, and I'd served by washing up. I just could not keep it a secret, because my pride was like, come on, give me some recognition. I've been a servant. Not really a servant with that kind of attitude. The thing is, we need to practice serving others, because actually in serving others, we get God's heart for them. You know, there, there are times when we're so overwhelmed by the grace of God that we serve and it just comes to us. And there are some that do it so well and put the rest of us to shame. But if you're like me and know that need to just practice this discipline of service, if you like, that we have to engage our action before our hearts follow, then here are some ways we can do that really practically. The first is, is what John Ortberg, um, who's one of my favorite authors, calls the ministry of the mundane. Every day, we get countless opportunities to serve others. 
And I want us just in this moment now, I want you to think of one person that you might be able to serve in a mundane and ordinary way even this afternoon. It could be, people are turning to their husbands and wives, I can see it. You could serve me. Um, it might be helping your children with their homework. It might be just doing some jobs around the house. It might be that tonight you're the one that gets up when the baby cries. Who is it in your mind? Who comes to mind? Who, what's the job that comes to mind? What's the thing that comes to mind? I wonder if a challenge for us this Lent would be this. Each morning to begin the day by asking God two questions. Who can I serve and what can I do? Who can I serve? What can I do? How today, in the everyday kind of just grind of life, in, in the, in the, with the people I meet, in the workplace, with the family, whoever it might be, how can I serve? Who can I serve? And what can I do? Just that ministry of the mundane. The second thing is a ministry of being interrupted. I don't know if you're like me, one of those really focused people, and if someone kind of gets in the way of my focused direction, that's a real pain in the neck. Being interrupted is a real challenge. I think this way of serving others takes time and patience, compassion and love. And it takes us a willingness to lay down our own agenda and to serve someone else. James, um, the brother of Jesus, in his letter tells us this. Be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. I think God deliberately sends us interruptions that we might serve others. I think in everyday life, God sends us interruptions that we might serve others. It might be for some of us, we're new parents and and the interruption is the 4 a.m. feed. Or the interruption is, I've just settled down and we've got the baby asleep and then the dog next door barks and the baby wakes up. It might be in the workplace, we're desperately trying to finish this project and we've put our mind and soul into it. And then suddenly the computers crash and we lose our data. There's an interruption there. Well, might we dare to believe that God is involved in some of these interruptions? That God actually cares more about our assignments than we do? That God cares more about our sleep than we do? He cares about us so much more than we could possibly care about ourselves. But when we're open to that ministry of interruption, of being interrupted by others in a situation, and then asking that question, how can I serve? How can I help? How can I help my wife or my husband? How can I help my colleagues? How can I be the one to whom uh, others can find support? It will cost us our time, and it does require wisdom and the ability to trust God for the things that don't get done. But I wonder if we're too busy to be interrupted Maybe that's something that God might want to challenge us this week. How we can serve those who interrupt us. The irritations in life. The things that grab our attention. So that's number two. The third one is bearing the burdens of others. The ministry of bearing others. One of the highlights of my week is our life group on a Thursday. I absolutely love it. I love just meeting with others. I love sharing life with with those I'm getting to know and with new people. One of the most significant things about being in a life group or being in a small group of people is that you get to walk alongside others. You bear with one another and they bear with you. We get to help others through difficult times and seasons in life. We weep with those who weep as well as rejoicing with those who rejoice. We commit to a community of people for the long haul regardless of what we get out of it. 
Maybe for some of us, we need to be in a community where we're able to bear with one another. I'd always encourage people, if you're not in a life group, to think about joining a life group. If you want to find out what groups are available, there's a board at the back, there's flyers in the welcome area, you can come and talk to myself or one of the team. We'd love to point you in that direction. But I think it's a really good thing to do, is how we grow as we bear with one another. And we don't always know what the response is going to be. Sometimes we offer support and help, and it's rejected. Sometimes we seek to help others, and they don't get better. But the ministry of bearing with one another, including those who drive us up the wall, is a really important part of the discipline of service, of engaging in it. And in in engaging in it, we find life. Um, Famous writer Henri Nguyen was was kind of courted by all the top universities in America. He was a well-known author uh, and Catholic priest. And he felt God challenge him that his soul had grown empty in all this kind of public appearance. And he joined the L'Arche community who worked particularly with those with severe physical disabilities. And he lived in. And he lived there and he ministered to those who could give nothing back, in one sense. And in that, emptying of himself, giving up his academic career, his credentials, he still wrote and he still did speak, but he was very careful about what he did because he recognized that his heart had grown cold. But in giving up everything and in serving this community, he found life. Because it really is true that if we want to be great, we become the servant of all. If we want to be great, we give our lives to others. If we want to know true freedom, we serve. It genuinely works. The thing is with the gospel is that we put it into practice, it works. It changes our lives and the lives of others. That's the third thing, bearing the burdens of others. The fourth thing, really quickly, is that we serve with other people. There is room for secret service. I think that's really important, that we we serve without recognition. But it's also great to serve as part of a team. As part of the body of Christ, we want to serve our community, serve those who are outside the church. You know, you could read through the news sheet and find different ways of serving in the church family and there are always things to do. And We need everyone to be part of the family, serving and getting stuck in. But there are loads of ways outside of the community, as a church, as a life group, as a cluster, as, as, a, as a prayer triplet, that we can serve. That's the reason last September we took a day of doing this thing called The Noise where we, we did 14 practical projects around, around Ealing. Anything from painting and decorating and gardening to clearing a, um, a centre, moving um, a, a, a children's group a, a different, to different venues. You know, through Beesom, there are weekly van runs, through CAP, supporting those who are in debt, and more, Choices, Soup Kitchen. There are loads of ways that we can just get our hands dirty in a team of other people and serve. And, you know, I think there's life in doing that. I know in my life that I just find service hard because it just challenges my pride. It makes me think, I just want the recognition and the power and whatever else. And it doesn't come from anything other than giving my life to serve others. So imagine what a difference we could make if we looked to to give out that sacrificial love in word and action. How we could rebuild trust in our family, in our workplace, in our community. Because when people realize that we're not just in it for ourselves, trust grows, influence grows how we can bring the best out of others as we serve them in practical ways, how people come alive as we just serve them in the daily act of being interrupted, in the ministry of the mundane, in carrying the burdens of those around us. Jesus' sacrificial love shown in his ransom for us, paying the ransom for us on the cross. 
uh, began a revolution of service that he calls us to continue as his disciples today. Do we need to step out and serve? Do we need a fresh reminder today of what Jesus has done? How can we give? How can we fulfill the ministry of Jesus as servants? Why don't we stand together?